Today's News Talk Radio, TNT, TNT with Trish Wood. Hi, everybody. Trish Wood here on The Fringe, where all the best people are these days. Now we're moving on to another person that I admire very much, Dr. David Thunder, who I believe is in Spain, which is totally brilliant. Um, and he he's someone who has really influenced my thinking. He's pushed me in how I am viewing the some of the more tyrannical moves by governments in the age of COVID. But he also brings a lovely human element that feels sometimes empowering because, of course, where I am in Canada, we were crushed like bugs under the boot heel of our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, with the Emergencies Act and the bank account looting of people who supported the protesters and who were protesters. Imagine that. And now he's was, anyway, last week running around Europe talking about the threat of authoritarian governments like Putin's. And he, while he does that here, yes, he's not as bad as Putin. I'm not saying he is. But everything he did to crush the truckers' movement smacked of exactly that kind of behavior. So we are, we're pretty down here, those of us who are awake and enlightened about COVID. We still in Canada have federal vaccine mandates. We can't fly. We can't get on airplanes here and we, we can't, we just, we can't travel. We can't leave the country, essentially. Some people sneak across the border. Um, I don't know if they can get back in, but, but it's, it's, we're, we're the last country and in Ontario where I am, you know, the last province to do everything. And, um, it's abusive and the citizenry feels it and david thunder our brilliant guest understands it well and has written quite a lot about it so david um i want to ask you you're in spain in uh pamplona um what's the status of the covid regulations there are you a free man today well trish i'd very much like to be able to say that I'm completely free, at least with respect to COVID restrictions. Um, not entirely. Uh, Spain is a very contradictory country in its approach to COVID because it was actually quite more liberal than other European countries with regard to uh, the opening of hospitality, for example. Say, compared with the United Kingdom, Spain was definitely a lot more liberal, um, not to say they didn't have serious restrictions, but compared to the United Kingdom or say uh, France, uh, Spain was largely open regarding for a large part of the pandemic. Its hospitality uh, was largely open. You could move around fairly freely within the country. Um, but they, uh, the big contradiction for Spain is that they clung on to the mask rules, uh, perhaps as radically as anyone. They even had outdoor masking compulsory for a significant part of the pandemic. Uh, and at the moment they've removed outdoor masking. So that's, that's, that's been gone for quite a few months, uh, but they still have indoor masking requirements. So every time you go to the supermarket, get on a train, go to a bank, you are required to uh, mask up. So, so in that regard, no. Uh, some people don't understand perhaps how oppressive it feels to be told to wear a cloth over your face in your everyday oh, life. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but 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 some people don't seem to mind it. But I can say, uh, as someone who has read very carefully, <laughs> reviewed very carefully the studies on mask 
unmasking or community masking, um, there's just no solid scientific evidence to show that it really makes a big difference one way or another to wear a mask in public, um, especially if you're not even sick and you, you have no symptoms of illness. Well, yeah, and, and y exactly. And the interesting thing about the continued masking, which we're doing here as well, is that um, unless people are sick, unless there's an outbreak of it, people wanting to keep masks, and many people here do, David, it's nuts. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a kind of theater, but I also feel it's like you know, you give a baby a pacifier to settle them down. You know, they're not making rational scientific arguments. It's just, oh, you know, I kind of feel better when I have it on, or you'd never know, or out of an abundance of caution. You know, they just, they don't want to give it up even when there's no outbreak, there's no virus circulating in a way that people should be concerned about, but they still want it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in some ways, again, I'd be, I'd have a libertarian approach to this, really, in the sense that if, you know, if my neighbor really, if it makes them feel better to put on a mask, um, if, if, if for some reason, for an example, an elderly person um, with all of the COVID hysteria surrounding them, um, and it's true that during the height of the pandemic, elderly people were at significant risk. There's no question about that from the, from the virus. That's yeah. that's that's very clear. So if an elderly person during the pandemic, or perhaps now because they feel, uh, you know, in order to deal with their fear, they wanted to wear a mask in uh, indoor settings or even outdoors, I I'm not going to stand in their way. Obviously, that's their choice. Um, even though I don't think that they're really necessary at this stage that they're making much difference um, uh, really to outcomes in general, because this particular strand of, I mean, Omicron is going to hit everybody. If it hasn't already hit them, it's going to reach everybody anyway. Um, and yeah. it's a very mild, variant, very mild variant. But I think what I have a problem with is the idea that the government needs to tell all of us to put this mask on our face. Um, and I would direct uh, listeners in case they want to look it up, uh, to the European Centre for um, uh, the ECDC, European Centre for D uh, Disease Control and Prevention, um, also the World Health Organization in its discussion, and also the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based uh, Medicine and the Cochrane Institute, Cochrane, C-O-U-G-H-R-A-N, which is kind of engages in medical research and it's quite prestigious. All of these organisations have done have meta studies. They've, in other words, they've reviewed all of the extant studies, the major studies on masking, and they've all concluded. They've come to very similar conclusions, namely that masking, community masking, um, the evidence for the efficacy of community masking for stopping or slowing down the spread of disease is weak or inconclusive, weak to moderate, and 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 overall inconclusive. That is what you find when you go to these organisations. So in case somebody thinks, you know, they might think it that I'm making this up, they should go to those sources. They should go to those sources and check them out for themselves. Yeah. And I agree with you. I have an aging housekeeper and, you know, she she's actually not afraid of the virus at all, which is quite interesting. But but and when I say aging, I mean, she's like 85. Um, mm -hmm. And when there was a lot of virus circulating, 
you know, a year ago, I was happy to wear a mask in front of her. You know, if it made her feel comfortable, I, I would never refuse mm -hmm. to do that. Where, mm -hmm. I, where I feel really diminished as a human is the demand that we wear them everywhere all the time because a couple of people aren't comfortable. You know, they're just, it's the abundance mm -hmm. of caution thing. And I, I, I want that to go away because I feel on some level, and I know that you think deeply about these things, David, but I, I mm -hmm. feel on some level we are, you know, we're being diminished. Our humanity is diminished. I, I, I walk down the street sometimes and I feel like I'm, I'm on planet Zeldon or something. I'm only seeing people's eyes and everybody's kind of furtive, you know, looking at each other. It's, it's just not good for us. I'm inclined to, I, I agree, basically. I mean, I, I noticed, for example, that when they lifted the mask mandate in Spain for the for outdoor settings, how you see this, people are more relaxed in their sort of, uh, when they're in their dealings with others, with strangers, people walking down the street look happier. Um, in general, it's, it's a signal, it's a psychological signal. Um, when you mask up, you create the atmosphere of a hospital. Uh, no matter where you are, if you're in a supermarket or a bank and everyone is wearing a mask, it's sending a signal to the brain that we are in an unsafe environment, right? So that's so when you lift the masks, nothing, actually, it's quite possible that nothing changes objectively about your situation in terms of, say, disease circulation and so on, and your exposure to, to the disease. Nothing really changes. And yet, funnily enough, when you lift the mask mandates, People just feel so much more relaxed, and you, you, you the atmosphere uh, changes. Um, it becomes more uh, kind of just more relaxed and, and less tense. Um, but but I think uh, I did a I did a short podcast on this myself um, and uh, a few months ago. And one of the things I, I pointed out was that the reason uh, mask mandates are so, in a way, I would say humiliating, but also um, in some ways degrading is because many, many people, many people who submit to mask mandate, many people who wear masks out and about are doing so against their better judgment only exclusively because they're afraid of disapproval or they're afraid of being, uh, you know, fined by somebody or being taken to task. Um, they're not doing it uh, because they actually believe that it's a good idea. Some people do do it because they think it's a good idea, but many people, including myself, do it basically to a, sometimes, and I do it to the bare minimum, I will say, um, if I'm in front of a police officer and he's about to hand me a fine, I'll put my mask up just to keep him happy. Uh, yeah. But but this, this situation is ridiculous, and it certainly is ridiculous for a free citizen to do this sort of thing. And, and then just one thing that a friend, uh, I remember saying to me, or on Twitter, some, when I was on Twitter, uh, so somebody said to me, you know, yeah. what about traffic traffic rules? You, you adhere to traffic rules. But there's, there's absolutely no, that's not a valid comparison um, because traffic rules are nothing as controversial as mask rules. Traffic rules are widely accepted because it's very obvious that they do in fact uh, facilitate good, safe circulation and, and that's why they're widely accepted. Um, the reason mask rules are so controversial is, of course, because the science behind them is so weak. Well, absolutely. And, and the other yeah. argument is, 
you know, is this, it's this sort of the same as the seatbelt argument, right? Which of course any sane person could argue <laughs> against in three seconds mm. about why it's not a, a comparable, a comparable uh, comparison. I spoke um, at the beginning just about the trucker convoy in Ottawa and your, your comment about how when people take masks off, they almost exhale. They sometimes they smile instantly. That was exactly the environment at the trucker convoy in Ottawa and also at the one here that I attended, people weren't wearing masks. They were so happy to be able to speak out and say what they really believed. They weren't hiding themselves mm -hmm. anymore. It was like, a, it was a real moment of joy for, for this country. And, and, and mm -hmm. I believe uh, there was a psychological lift as if we'd been abused for two years, which I, I think we have been traumatized by the way the government's handled this and public health. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. To see people that joyful and connected, you know, there were little old ladies standing on the overpasses as the trucks went by and nuns coming out in their full habits, you know, waving mm -hmm. with signs. Go to, I mean, it was like, it was, it, was, it was the Canada that I know and love versus the compliant Canada that wants more mm. lockdowns and masks, right? And um, yeah. for the prime minister to crush that in the way that he did mm. was very, very difficult. And I know that you have written about and indeed talked about civil disobedience in the face of creeping mm. tyranny around COVID. What was your response yeah. in watching how that played out, David? Well, um, on the one hand, I felt that the uh, the whole convoy was actually long overdue in a sense that I was surprised up to that point that there had not been a stronger public reaction to the discrimination that was being um, you know, perpetrated against uh, people for not choosing a government-mandated vaccine. And so I was very relieved to see the, the convoy go ahead and to see the impact it was having and the, the fact that it was getting actually getting mainstream media coverage, coverage uh, beginning to get, which I was actually very pleased with. Uh, and I think I was very, let's just say in some ways I was quite disappointed with the way the Trudeau dealt with the protest. Um, and I think it's important to make some distinctions here. Um, I understand that people living in Ottawa, um, in the downtown area um, where the protest was happening, I can understand that, you know, there were times during the protest when they felt uh, inconvenienced, let's say, right, if you're living in the neighborhood. Imagine, for example, there might, there, it's very possible, as far as I can understand, there were times when the honking of the horns annoyed some of the neighbors. They, like, we're human when you, when you mount a protest, you get these kinds of, you know, you get these kinds of inconveniences. It's part of what a protest actually kind of means in a way that it's disruptive. So uh, it's inevitable that some people who live, who are residential, who live in, in the city would be inconvenienced. But the, the, the way to approach that was, of course, to dialogue with the protesters and find a way to, you know, to reduce some of those tensions and to maybe make whatever uh, concessions or accommodations that could be made. But uh, Trudeau, basically, what he did was he refused to meet with the protesters. He refused point blank to meet with them um, or to negotiate with them. And instead, just invoked the Emergency Act, sent in the police, 
uh, gave uh, ultimatums and warnings to the truckers, there was no spirit of dialogue, no willingness to engage, no willing to, to empathize in any way with their with their cause or with their concerns and their, their complaints. And so he basically handled it the way a dictator would handle a protest, essentially, which is to say, just by pure, pure power, I am going to bring in the police and kick you out and suppress you. Uh, that's not how you handle a protest in, in a free country. Um, and, uh, and so, of course, the protest could not be in downtown forever indefinitely that was just not it probably was not viable um for for i mean let's just say there was they were going to have to leave at some point okay and and i i understand there's a kind of real we have to be realistic about that but the the the, the approach of refusing to negotiate invoking emergency powers completely unnecessarily because he had all the powers he needed already to deal with the protests freezing their bank accounts threatening to freeze their bank accounts going after their private property. That's just despicable. Um, so that did surprise me. For all of I know about Trudeau, I know I, in a way it didn't surprise me a whole lot, his reaction. But when he moved to freeze their bank accounts and the bank accounts of people supporting them um, and their insurance, their vehicle insurance, that's when, I, that's when I really got especially worried because in a free society, in a democracy, in a modern democracy, um, one of the things you do not touch is the private property of people, even if they're protesting, and even if it's an illegal protest, even if even if there are legal issues there, um, you cannot uh, go after their property because once you do that, that is the beginning of the end of freedom. Once the government can lay its hands on our property whenever it disagrees with us politically. Well, I I completely agree with that, and and the other thing I want to add to the mix about how he handled it was that he spent weeks smearing them with false allegations of Nazism mm. and misogyny and all kinds Racism. of other... Mm. Yeah, just ridiculous, completely not verifiable claims. You know, there were some rowdy mm. guys. There's rowdy people in every protest, right? And these yeah. these people yeah. were mostly, you know, were mostly... They were, they were peaceful protesters, um, but they, mm -hmm. the media and the prime minister focused on a couple of outlying guys with, you know, with, um, you know, with unacceptable views in his, in his phrase, but that was not who they were. That was an absolute lie. And it was a yeah, lie was. facilitated by mainstream media. And it was a lie uh, perpetuated by our prime minister. It was actually hate speech, right? Against the protesters. Yeah. So by the time he moved to do the emergencies act, they were well and truly smeared. And what happened, mm. you know, in, to kind of micro a bit the Ottawa reaction, they did stop honking the horns relatively early on with, I'm sure there were outbursts, but it really was a cultural war in that people who live in Ottawa are primarily civil servants, right? Most of them vote liberal. Mm. And they mm -hmm. would be followers of, of Justin Trudeau. They saw, mm -hmm. because of the hate campaign, they saw these kind of, they were accusing them of being Trump supporters and MAGA people and QAnon mm -hmm. and, and all this stuff. So the pushback from the city of Ottawa and, and indeed mm -hmm. the cops and the citizens 
yeah, of course, people were mad about the noise and the disruption, but it seemed mm. to be primarily fueled by the cultural divide between a smeared mm. working class, you know, and the and the sort of the bureaucrat class that inhabits inhabits that city. Yeah, I agree. And I think when you think about it, every dictator, whether it's in Venezuela or in North Korea or in um, Nazi Germany or uh, you know, where, wherever you see, uh, or it's fascist Italy, uh, one of the instruments of dictatorship, one of the tools of dictatorship is to divide society and to identify an enemy, um, to identify very clearly an enemy that needs to be suppressed. And then you unite the rest of the society around your cause, which is basically to destroy the enemy. And I, I think it, when you see in a democracy, when you see leaders like uh, Trudeau, and um, Biden and Macron, um, when you see them go after um, a, a certain section of the citizenry um, and openly smear them and openly dismiss them as being bad citizens because of their medical choices. Uh, I mean, if you think through what that means, that's a symptom of, uh, let's say, uh, a certain kind of dictatorship whereby, um, or tyranny, if you will, um, whereby the political, the leader of the country or, or the, you could say, an elite within the country decides that in order to shore up their own power, in order to consolidate their power, they um, just put up a kind of a, an enemy for everybody that becomes a target of public hatred and resentment and hostility. Um, and... Uh, you know, when you divide society like that, you actually begin to delegitimate its public institutions because people who are who are excluded and are um, kind of, uh, you know, people who, who suffer these kinds of this kind of vilification, unjust vilification by their political leaders. How are they going to think about the legitimacy of elections? Our society is built on a kind of social contract. We don't literally sign up to anything, right? We, we do, we can go and we can elect, we can participate in elections, which is a way of legitimating the system in a way when you actually show up and you vote. Um, but there isn't a really important sense in which our society is a social contract in the sense that there is a set of expectations um, uh, concerning the behavior of those we elect. We uh, recognize their right to hold power and to exercise power on our behalf for the common good. Um, and we recognize that not everybody can actually hold power at the same time. So we permit a rotation of power. We permit elections in which some people um, govern on, on our behalf. Um, and the social contract depends on um, those who govern respecting a certain set of rights that citizens have, including freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, um, freedom of religion, and of course, private property. Um, and if political leaders begin to erode those civil rights, if they begin to treat some citizens as unequal, as less important than others, as less worthy of respect than others, they are breaking the social contract and when they break the social contract, they sow the seeds of instability, political instability, and delegitimation of the regime. 
So, um, uh, so once you introduce a kind of tyrannical form of rule that does not respect the basic rights of citizens, you are going down a path that could potentially end with a collapse of the democratic regime. I feel that might be happening now or that we're heading in that direction. They're ostracizing a whole level of, of, uh, of the population in a democracy as bad people. Anyway, let me ask you this. You wrote a piece uh, in your blog, on your substack, which is terrific, and people should go there, mm -hmm. David Thunder's substack. Um, mm -hmm. And it's called Civil Society Strong Enough to Withstand the Menace of Democratic despotism. What a great question. So what is the answer seeing that we're experiencing this pretty huge encroachment right now? Yes. Um, I'll just mention that if, if people would like to see my substack and kind of review my work on, on that, it's actually the address they should go to. The URL is, is my name, my full name, David Thunder, as in Thunder Lightning, davidthunder.substack.com. <laughs> Um, Good. And uh, and so yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, and you've so also just, let me just say while we're doing that, mm -hmm. you've got a Telegram, you've got a Getter, you've got a Rumble, a YouTube, and a Spotify, and you have all That's those right. things, but you don't have Twitter because they kicked you off. I was absolutely—you were one of my favorite Twitter feeds, and I was oh, flabbergasted. Why, why did they kick you off? What was well, the offending um, tweet? Yeah, I mean, so with Twitter, what happens is they suspend you temporarily uh, on multiple occasions. Um, I mean, at least in my, my experience was that I was, my account was suspended something like three or four times, maybe three times before wow. the permanent suspension. Okay, so it starts with maybe just for 24 hours or 48 hours, then it's for a week, then maybe another week. And then it's like you're permanently suspended. That's the end. It's, it's it's case closed. You're not going to be back again. So the reason, let's just say that the final tweet, uh, the last tweet that I was, let's say that they accused me of misinformation on, um, was a tweet in which um, basically I said that uh, many people in the world were treating people for um we're we're using ivermectin to cure people of covid-19 right we're using it in order to cure people um and 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 i suppose if i were to rewrite that tweet i might say in order to treat them um yeah. but the the intent was to cure them clearly if they used if if they were giving it to them um <laughs> but the point was that in, in india and mexico um, it was being used at the time, and, um, and as far as I know, it's still used. You can e easily get ivermectin in Mexico. I've been there, so I know. Um, it just you could buy it in a pharmacy. Um, but it, 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 there were even studies done. I know for a fact that there was a study done that was published in, uh, in Mexico on the use of ivermectin in which it gave pretty good results. But in the, in the tweet, I did not say ivermectin. I actually didn't even say that ivermectin is having a huge impact, is saving lots of lives. I just said that ivermectin is being used widely and it's being used in Mexico and in, Indi in places like Mexico and India in order to cure COVID-19. I didn't say it's curing everyone. I didn't even say that it cured one person, but I said that it is being used to cure COVID-19. So anyway, any hint, any hint of a positive resonance with ivermectin in the sentence is enough to get you suspended from, from Twitter.
when I when I when I appeal, when I send an appeal to them, I don't even know if there's I doubt that there's really a human being involved because I get exactly the same form letter every single time. There's been no variation on that letter. And every time the letter simply says you have been suspended permanently, permanently suspended for repeat violations. That's what they call it. Repeat violations. Um, they never explain, uh, you know, exactly what I said that was wrong about ivermectin. Um, they never said, no, they don't use ivermectin in India or in, in Mexico. They never denied the things that I said. Um, they never showed counter evidence of any sort. And then I know there was an earlier tweet in which I I said, I said something along the lines of uh, concerning the vaccine that uh, the COVID vaccine um, is... Uh, it's not clear that the COVID vaccine is beneficial for young and healthy people because young and perfectly young, healthy people are at extremely low risk from COVID-19. We know this from the statistics. It's so yeah. clear from the hospitalizations. So clear. So yeah. where, whereas the risk, the, the, the vaccine is relatively uh, new, um, and it was very, very new when I was writing this tweet. I don't remember exactly when, I, probably in September or so of last year. Um, it wasn't even one year in use, the vaccine, when I was writing this. Um, and there were already some signals that it could be causing, having some effects um, among uh, some, some ne negative uh, harms for young people. So I was simply saying we need to be cautious about this. Um, we know that young and healthy people are at very low risk from COVID, extremely low risk from COVID. So the, the risk-benefit uh, analysis doesn't uh, uh, obviously favor vaccination for them. Um, that's one perspective that I offered. Um, well, it's I don't a perfectly think it's a reasonable, old-fashioned scientific perspective, right? I mean, there's nothing Well, I think so. Radical. I mean, even if you disagreed <laughs> with it, even if you disagreed yeah. with it, even if you yeah. thought... No, I take a different view of the risk-benefit, uh, you know, balance, and I tend to say if someone said, "Well, I," they they think that the vaccine is on the on balance beneficial for young and healthy people. Fair enough. Well, then why don't you provide a counter argument? But but when you suppress uh, an argument um, with no uh, counter argument, without 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 even saying why, what's wrong with with the argument? Um, you're just silencing, you're silencing a voice um, with no discussion, with no debate. Um, and let's say, you know, That's imagine if, yeah, because I mean, if somebody said, okay, if somebody was teaching people to make bombs, right, on Twitter, I'd say, fair enough, shut down the account, fair enough. That's a direct threat to life and limb. Um, but somebody is offering an informed and broadly reasonable, even if it wasn't considered particularly reasonable, um, an opinion, um, you know, they're offering an opinion about an important medical matter and they're giving their interpretation. Um, what, what, what exactly is the harm that, that is supposed to happen? What's the bad thing that's supposed to happen by allowing me to talk? That's, that's the question I have, really. Um, and, and I know what the answer is. I know what the answer Twitter might give and a lot of people would give. And they'd say, oh, you might cause some vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, right? that's you might. Th yeah. That's what they're going to say. And I'd say something. I'd say I'd say this. Well, let's see. Um, so let's take this argument to its logical conclusion. 
we want to avoid any form of vaccine hesitancy. So what do we need to do for that? We need to suppress any signals, any signals that people give that the vaccine might be, might have some side effects, some negative side effects. We need to suppress evidence, any evidence that emerges as it emerges that the vaccine might, might actually be harmful. Um, and, and so in other words, in order to protect vaccine confidence, we would be willing to, to, to basically suppress evidence that the vaccine in fact can be harmful, um, if that was the case. Obviously at that point, they lose me completely because th then I realize they don't, then you're not really caring about the good of the person, the good of the person being vaccinated, which obviously well, well, is not health. only that, not only that, David, but the latest thing I'm hearing from various jurisdictions now that the vaccines are really failing at uh, preventing transmission <laughs> is that they're not, they're no longer going to release the numbers of vaccinated people getting COVID because they think it might cause vaccine hesitancy. So it's like, let me get this straight. So the vaccine's not preventing transmission and people can't know that because it might prevent them from getting a vaccine that isn't preventing transmission. I mean, it's, it's a ludicrous loop. And um, yeah. I, I know there's a couple, I think Ireland is not giving out those numbers anymore. And I know in Ontario here, they're pulling some of those numbers back for that very reason. But if the vaccine is not working the way they say it's supposed to work, why, like, we should know that, shouldn't we? Anyway, um, I want yeah, to sure, finish your thought. And I want to, I'm, mm -hmm. I don't want to run out of time before I get your deep thoughts mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. living in the age of encroaching COVID tyranny and what we do about it now, especially for us in Canada, but other places where, where dissent is put down, where, um, vocalizing or writing criticisms of what they're doing is censored. How do we push back on this in a meaningful way now? Well, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, the article that you, you mentioned from my Substack, um, which had to do with uh, the sort of the threat of democratic despotism. Um, I mean, basically the point I was making that article was just that uh, that that in a modern era, um, we believe that the state, uh, there's a kind of a, a story we tell ourselves, right? A, a shared story of legitimacy, which says that we entrust public power to the state to be exercised on behalf of the people, okay? Uh, for the common good, for the good of all. Um, and, and, and so we say the state is sovereign. And when we say the state is sovereign, one of the things we mean is that the state actually exercises um, full power uh, on behalf of the people, public power, um, and that it is a privileged actor to do that. Like a private citizen can't, uh, normally it's considered that a private citizen cannot, for example, start their own police force or something like that. Okay, that's entrusted to the state. The problem is, of course, that the people, the people is actually a complex creature made up of many different groups, many different groups that are affected differently by policies. Um, but if you manage to get a kind of democratic legitimation, like say a majority of people who, uh, say if a majority of people supported the state in enacting measures that were fundamentally tyrannical and despotical, despotic, um, that maybe hurt 
a minority of citizens particularly badly, but then maybe a majority of citizens doesn't feel the pain as much. And so, and they might even be convinced through propaganda to support what the state is doing. And actually, I believe that in large part, that's what I believe has happened during this pandemic. So the question then becomes, um, how do you, what's the resource that you have? What kind of resources do you have to push back against the sovereign state acting in the name of the people and using this kind of popular democratic narrative to legitimate its policies, even its unjust policies? The answer is uh, one answer that I've conclusion I've come to, and say Alexis de Tocqueville, a French uh, theorist of the 19th century, came to a, this conclusion as well. Um, and I've learned a lot from him. Um, is that we need more robust, more vigorous, more energetic, more autonomous civil society institutions. We need organizations of citizens that do not depend directly on the state for their legitimacy. Um, or for their internal sort of organization and their actions. Um, and I mean, you mean like the church? What, what kind of organization do you mean, yes. David? So, so I mean, any organization that is made up of citizens um, for, uh, say, some kind of social purpose or moral purpose, um, or even an economic purpose for that matter. And, and I, I, what I have in mind is things like schools, right? Um, particularly schools in which parents. Um, have a big input into how the schools are run and what the curriculum yeah. is. Um, uh, churches uh, is a very is, is I think is also a good example um, because they provide a, a form of authority and teaching that does not depend on Trudeau or the state directly. Right? It's 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 independent from the state. Um, think of say universities. Universities also provide uh, an environment in which citizens can uh, develop their mind and can develop a kind of interior freedom of the mind through study and reflection and dialogue and so on. Um, but every citizen can think of their own local organizations, whether it's the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or your local school or your parochial center, your, your community center, um, uh, or, your, or even your neighborhood association, for that matter. Um, the, the, the point is, or indeed the truckers association, actually the truckers protest is a good example of a civil society organization that was set up for a specific purpose to resist a tyrannical measure of the government. So um, I leave it to, to listeners to use their imagination and think of some organization or group that either is in existence or could come into existence through the free initiative of citizens. And because these groups, what they do is they provide citizens with a kind of narrative, a kind of way of thinking and a way of living that is not simply handed down to them by the state. Does that make sense? It does. And it makes me feel a little bit like I might have to move, you know, because I'm because I'm surrounded where I live by people who don't think like me. They're very mm. Covidian and have bought into it as a moral calling. And, um, yeah. you know, you know, the people who keep me sane are people like you, obviously, but I have a circle of people who think the way that we do. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they're, they're the people I talk to now, but in my own community, it's pretty rare. I, I do feel there may be a point where I have to get out of here and go and be yeah. 
with my people and my people were the truckers. That's how I felt when I was down at one of the demos. And I don't mean literally the truckers themselves, although they would be part of it, but the people who were there feeling mm -hmm. free and enlightened and no longer oppressed and loving the idea that there were other people through all walks of life who were feeling the same way. It was a brilliant thing, David. I wish you could have experienced it. It was one of the highlights of my life. I mean, I do think that what you're saying brings up an interesting point, which is that um, that there are two kinds of communities that you can um, participate in. And one is virtual, um, which is using the internet, using communication, online communication, and using media like Substack, for example, is a great resource and people should look that up. Not just me, but they, they should look up other people. I have actually, one of my Substack blogs, blog posts actually mentions a number of different uh, writers that I recommend that, uh, that yeah. they can look that up There's as good well. Good ones, so, really good ones. Substack yeah. is so I, uh, really yeah. Important. I think Substack is a good a good resource, and I think virtual there are you know different kind of virtual communities that that people can you know join, and I'm involved in in several of them. But I think it's clear we're we're, we're flesh and blood, blood human beings. We need physical embodied communities. It's not enough to just relate to people via the internet. We need no. real physical, uh, I'm not saying those communities are not real. Of course, they're real because they're, they're great people and you learn a lot from each other and you can support each other. And I can tell you that I got a lot of consolation from listening to people like Martin Kuldorf, Jay Bhattacharya, Sunetra, Kuldor, uh, Sunetra Gupta over the course of the pandemic, right? That, that, that helped me so much listening to them and hearing their perspective. Um, yeah. but, but I think we need to find a way to build um, uh, I, what would you call them? Embodied communities, geographic yeah. communities, communities where you actually meet face to face and not just through a mask. Um, this is necessary. The church can provide this to people who are believers. Um, you know, this this can be a way at, at its best. It can provide these kinds of communities or a kind of a framework or resort a framework for that. Um, but I think what you said, I completely agree. Sometimes people just need to leave. Sometimes people need to go to a different place. People are flocking to Florida in the United States. Yeah, I know. Flocking I know. to Florida for the freedom. I mean, and I can understand that. I mean, if it's yeah, practical, no, I know. God knows. I, I might do that myself if I lived in the United States. <laughs> well, and DeSantis has just been such a, a, a bright, shining light of how a leader can lead through this. You know, he, he, he came to understand very deeply the science. He wasn't taking any crap from the media who had their own agenda on this. And Florida's done really well. And I'm sure, you know, he's flawed like all of our other political leaders these days, but I think he really showed the way. And if I had to choose a place to live based on leadership right now, it would be, it would definitely, definitely be, be, be Florida. No question about it. Because mm -hmm. I'm exhausted yeah. now. You know, I went out today uh, and when I go out to run errands, I'm surrounded. The COVID theater is still in the stores. You got to walk this way and don't go that way and wear a mask. And the door has got all these warnings on it. And we're running out of time. So I'm going to stop talking because I want to hear more mm -hmm. from you. Mm -hmm. Psychologically, mm -hmm. um, once we feel, you know, we can create these little communities, but we know in Canada that protests are not really, they have no power. So what, psychological tips would you give people still living in this shadow who've got to get up every day and go on in the face of a whole bunch of nonsense? Yeah, I mean, 
One thing I'd say is I, I, I look back to, say, uh, the Poles under communism. I mean, they had to live for decades and decades under an absolutely absurd and unjust communist system where they were completely alienated from their public institutions. So I think back and what helped them help them to survive and to preserve their culture. I mean, I would say, first of all, of course, their faith. And I'm not saying everyone is going to become a Christian overnight, right? But um, I think having um, some higher, call, let's say, uh, understanding what your most important values are um, and not looking to the state to tell you what they are, um, having very clear sort of some source of um, inspiration, um, whether it, it could also be actually individuals who, who you admire and you can learn from. I think that's really, that can be helpful just to orient you and to orient me as well. Of course, I, I, need, I need this very much. I think just do the best you can yeah. and carve out spaces of freedom in your backyard, in your family life, in your neighborhood. Find people who see things the way you do, who understand the value of freedom and build something with them, no matter what happens in your in your society. Such good advice, David. Thank you for doing this. You can be found on Substack, Telegram, Getter, Rumble, YouTube, and Spotify. Thank you very much. Trish Wood Thank here. You. I can be found on my podcast, Trish Wood is Critical. I have a website, trishwoodpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter way more than I should be, uh, at Wood Reporting. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. Stay critical. <laughs> <laughs>